Good morning. We're glad that you're here this morning. I remember the first time, and maybe I guess it was the only time, that my dad took him with him when he gave blood. Did your parents ever do that? They like to kind of show you, I'm going with you, I'm going I'm to give blood, this is how it's done. Well, uh, when, he, when he took us there, or took me with him to give blood that day, when he got through, they asked him when was the last time he had a meal and that type of thing, and, and he hadn't eaten enough. And so they said, well, you know, you need to come back in a little while. So dad, he, we left. I remember we went over to McDonald's. He ate something pretty quickly. And uh, I just remember because I never got to go to McDonald's. And so I got to, to get chicken nuggets and it was awesome. It was fantastic. So then we go and he gives blood. So this is the one time I remember him taking me to give blood. And, and so he gives blood. And then afterwards, we're walking out and there was a man coming in the door and so the man opened the door up and held it for my dad. And it was a double set of doors. And my dad walked into the other door and fell flat on his back and passed out. Because he should not have given blood. He did not have enough food in him. He did not, and for some reason, I, I talk about giving blood here way too often, by the way. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, that was my first experience with, with that with my dad. Thanks a lot, Dad. That was, that was exciting. And so then my dad also took me uh, with him in the voting booth when he voted uh, that time. And I don't know who he voted for. I don't remember that. But he just, he voted and he took me in the booth and he pulled the thing and, and I got to learn how to vote that way. And so no, he didn't faint afterwards or anything like that. Um, I've been able now to go in the voting booth for a presidential election five times. I've personally been old enough to walk in there and pull it uh, five times. I know that many of you have done that many more times. You've had many more opportunities uh, than I have to do that. But I will tell you in my five times of voting that I have been disappointed with my selection five out of five times. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but in some way, not because uh, I voted maybe for the wrong person, but maybe just it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to turn out to be. And I, I know that that happens where, you know, some of you who have had a lot more trips to that voting booth than myself, I think that you'd come to that same conclusion. Maybe not five out of five, but you come in and you say, we had a lot of expectations, we had a lot of hopes, and it just didn't quite pan out the way that we thought it was going to when I pulled uh, that lever. So how does this happen? How does someone who has great potential, someone who has great charisma, the great ability uh, to uh, gather people around themselves, if nothing else, they've got great name recognition, and they're able to say, yeah, well, I know that name, I'll vote for that person. And so how is it that we get to the point where we walk away, you know, six months later, a year later, four years later, or eight years later, disappointed uh, with that selection? How does that happen? Well, at the end of the day, all of our nation's presidents are the same thing. They are politicians. And politicians have one job, one role, that's what they go after, is to get elected, uh, to get the job, and to get reelected. That's a, that's a politician's job. That's a politician's role. And they, they, that's all that they're supposed to do. And they're able to do it, and they're able to do it well. And this election has caught many of us by surprise. If the polls are any indication ahead of time, no one expected uh, us to be having President Trump at the helm right now. Uh, his favorability rating would not say that he would be the president at the helm right now, but here we are. And there are many different opinions on that. Uh, there are many spiritual giants that I have in my life, or the guys that I would read, and they see things differently. There are people who are excited that President Trump is now the president, and this is a great victory for faith. 
If you watch the inauguration, at the end of the inauguration, a, a great leader, uh, Franklin Graham, came up and he spoke. But before he had his benediction prayer, he said, just so that you know, President Trump, that rain is a sign of blessing anytime that it's in the Bible. And so God is blessing your presidency. That's an inauguration day. The same day, John Piper releases an article that he wrote that morning, and within an hour or two hours, it already had 50,000 shares on Facebook and different things like that with the title, and make sure I get this title right, How to Live Under an Unqualified President. Very different approach to some, both men that I respect a great deal. Both men who have a modern-day gospel-centric view of this world, of how they are looking through the scope of how we reach the world, how we evangelize the lost for Christ with a very different view of this election, very different view of our president. So how is this division possible? How is it something that we wrestle with? We are keenly aware of the division that, that exists in our nation, but this election has brought it to light all that much more. And it seems like in every direction we look, every news article that you read, every tweet that goes out, it seems like there is another fight brewing, another level of the division and dysfunction. So where is it realistic for a follower of Jesus to stand? What are we supposed to do? How many of you are still making New Year's resolutions? No one. That was a zero. No one is still making... If you're listening to a podcast or ever, the room had a zero. That was a zero response. Let me re suggest maybe your last resolution of 2017. Here's the resolution. Resolve with me. We will never have a Savior on Capitol Hill. Resolve with me. We will never have a Savior on Capitol Hill. President Trump very well may be the shot in the arm that our country needs to be able to get some things moving that have not moved previously. He may do a fine job. He may do a fantastic job. He may be one day one of the best presidents that's ever come through the Oval Office. He may advance agendas that we see as pro-Christianity or see as important, and we would call them pro-family or we would say it's pro-evangelical. This is a movement that we want to see, and he may advance all of those agendas, but we will never have a savior on Capitol Hill. There will never be a president who finishes a tough day in the office, who finishes a tough day of debating uh, with Congress and goes for a stroll in the evening and just keeps on walking out across, walking on the water across the reflection pool. It's not going to happen. We will never have a president who's in the middle of a presidential address and as uh, he's starting to really share what's on his heart, he's, he'll stop everything because there's children in the back that want to come in and speak with him. He says, you know what, I'm going to stop all this. Let the children come in. Let's just talk uh, with the kids right now because they're the most important thing. That will never happen. There'll never be a president who deals with our growing health care crisis by visiting all the hospitals in the region and laying his hands on people where all of a sudden the blind were able to see, the lame were able to walk, that our veterans who are missing arms and limbs coming back from war, that all of a sudden they grow back like in scripture we see with those who had leprosy. We will never have a savior on Capitol Hill. But there is hope because we do have a savior. God sent his only son to be our savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is our savior. 
We came out of a series this fall. Yes, this series that we're in right now is called Resolution, but our series in this fall uh, was called In God We Trust because we see that on our dollar bills. We see it everywhere we look. I would love for that to be a memory to you of In God We Trust. That means that life has to be lived out in certain ways. So in God we trust. The election is over. The votes are in. President Trump is there in the Oval Office. He has been selected, but our God is still on his throne. Today is a new day. The sun still came up this morning, and the sun will go down, and it'll come up again, not because of who's in the Oval Office, but because of who is on the throne. In God we trust, Jesus, our Savior, died on the cross, giving a sacrifice for every human being on this planet, regardless of their radical ideals, regardless of their behavior right now, regardless of their view of our country or our safety or our security. Jesus died, our Savior died on the cross for them. And God we trust because Jesus our Savior told his disciples and extended it to us through doing that, that this is not the end. He gave this promise. John 14, 3 says this, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come back and I will take you with me. I will take, I, will, I gotta read it right. <laughs> I will come back and take you to be with me, and that you may also be where I am. Revelations, the author, John, says again, he says, well, then come back, Jesus. Come quickly. We're ready. So what's God waiting for? What is God waiting for? Let me answer that question with a question. Why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Have you ever asked yourself why God waited so long in all of history for Israel to make a fool of themselves before sending his son, Jesus, to earth? It'd be a mistake to think through that and think through the context of that, of thinking that, well, history just marches on and that God has been trying to do his own thing and he's getting frustrated with history and he's been trying to push his agenda and history's been moving on and eventually he's going to get his way. That would be a huge mistake. God is driving history. God is motivating history. It was 2,000 years between when he chose Abraham and his people to be God's special people before Jesus is announced in the book of Matthew as Christ, the Messiah. It's 2,000 year gap and Jesus was not there because God had finally gotten his agenda passed. You understand that? God is driving and was driving history. Bible pictures God is ruling history, not being frustrated by it. The prophet Daniel says this in Daniel chapter 2, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and the power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs, and he removes kings and he establishes kings. You see, God governs all of this. God is in control. God is paying attention. And it's inaccurate. And it's unhealthy of us to expect that we would ever have a Savior on Capitol Hill. It's also inappropriate to minimize the role that Jesus has or had when he came to the earth. To any kingship. To, to try to call it the same thing. As the passage that we're going to go to today, there are some who say, well, Jesus, he's very similar to uh, the Attorney General because he speaks. At, no! This is Jesus. And he is our Savior. And it would be a mistake for us 
to even comparatively put him on the same plane as the President of the United States or the Justice of the Peace or the Supreme Court. Jesus is in a league all his own. Jesus is God. Now, we have to have some context. We have to have some understanding of where this mix is. But, but really, there's a lot of controlling themes in Scripture that we cannot always make a parallel to in modern day. We are not always able to connect that to what we're living in right now because there's just some things that don't translate really well. I guarantee you there are not a lot of Buffalonians walking out and, and looking around today and going, I wonder if this 2000, is this the year of Jubilee? I'm not, I'm not sure. You know, there's no one walking around Williamsville this morning not thinking, I hope my high priest is up to date when he goes in this year with the blood sacrificed. I hope that he understands what atonement means because I'm really in need of repentance. I hope he does his job in the most holy place. No one is thinking these things. They're not thinking these terms at all. You see, our history is too limited, yours and mine, our history is too limited to interpret and understand Jesus. That's why we need God's history. That's why we need the Bible. And that's today why we are going to the book of Hebrews. Will you open your Bibles this morning? Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We do have Bibles in the pews in front if you'd like to use those. Uh, we're on page 1257 in those Bibles. If you're using those, if you're using a uh, phone or something like that, version is a great app to be able to use to just kind of track along where we're going. We're using the New International Version this morning. However you're going to get there, get yourself to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. The author is going to insist that we hold fast to Jesus. That we give him the honor that his position requires for it is he and only he that can hold the highest office. So what does it take to be holding the highest office? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you've got your bulletins, there's an insert in there. You can track along in there too to be able to work your way through with us. Here's the first fill-in. Holding the highest office. It is a category or the category of one. We're in Hebrews chapter 4 beginning in verse 14. You can read along with me. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly or hold fast to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need." Now, there are no high priests today in our context or what, we, uh, what we're looking at. But God planned for centuries with his history there in Israel that he was recording in the Old Testament so that we would have this context to be able to understand what a high priest was for understanding this category. But unlike all the other high priests that ever lived and died, this high priest lived and died but rose again, never to die again. You see, Jesus can sympathize with us in our tempting, in our pain, and in our dying because he actually lived through those phases of life. He experienced this life in its entirety. He saw excruciating pain at the cross. 
He saw excruciating pain in looking on the faces of those who loved him, what he was going through and the pain that they went through. And you see him at the grave of Lazarus and he weeps for his friends and his family. Why? Because he understands what they are going through. Now we see this illustration here to the throne of grace. And you understand that that word choice, that selection, the way that's put together, that's actually, it's an oxymoron. Those are opposites, and they're in the same thing. Why? Because throne means justice, but grace means mercy. Throne means justice, but grace means mercy. You see, I don't, I, I don't want karma. I want grace. In the Old Testament, we see kind of this policy of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know that if we live that way today, if that was really the way that you and I experienced our life, that we would all be blind and toothless. Why? Because as we come to the throne of grace, I am looking and laying my life down in front of the cross and resting it under His grace. Because every time that I get what I deserve, I am a wretched, wretched man. The throne of grace is important because of the one who sits there and the highest office there. The one who sits there makes it different from any other. And so what does it take to be holding the highest office? It is a category of one. And then secondly, these are the qualities of a few. So we see this category of one, but then now these qualities of a few. So there are, there are high priests that we find in Scripture. And what are their qualities? Well, the author will list two qualities here. And we don't know who the author of Hebrews is for sure, but we know the audience that they were writing to, a Hebrew audience, hence the name Hebrews. And they understood this context, but there are two things that are to be understood about the high priest. First, that they would identify with the people, and then second, that they would be called by God. These are the qualities of the high priest. Chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to see these qualities emulated. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on themselves, but he receives it when he is what? Called by God, just as Aaron was. So these two qualities, first that they would be called by God. God called Aaron to the office of high priest. We're not going to go there now, but that's in Exodus chapter 28. He serves an example for all that followed. It was going to be in the lineage and the heritage of Aaron. God's appointment confirmed him. There's this rebellion of Korah. Do you remember this rebellion? That they decided that God, maybe God didn't ordain Aaron, maybe because Moses and Aaron, uh, maybe Moses and Aaron came up with this idea that Aaron was going to be the high priest. And so Korah leads this rebellion to remove him as high priest. And what happens is God interacts, he intercedes, and the earth swallows Korah and his family whole to demonstrate. No, this is God's calling on his life. Aaron was going to be the high priest because God had called him to be the high priest. God showed the rebels and all of Israel that he had made them 
He had appointed Moses and Aaron. He had put them in that position. So first, they'd be called by God. Second, that they would be identified with the people. No Jew was free to enter the Holy of Holies. If you study the Old Testament and the synagogue and how that worked, they were not ever allowed to go in there, but the high priest was allowed to go in because he was going to meet directly with God. But he was only going to do that once a year. On the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies and speak on behalf of his people. He would have to be able to be connected and identified with the people so that he could do that. And he had to uh, step in there very carefully because God would kill him if he came in without the respect that he was due. And so they would go into that Holy of Holies, often with a, a rope tied around their ankle, just in case things didn't go well. No one else was going in there after that guy. So they could pull him back out, drag his body out if he did not represent them correctly or give God his proper due. Every Jew knew, every Hebrew man or woman and child, they knew they desperately needed someone to go in there. And this person needed to represent them well. That high priest was the mediator between him or her and God. That the high priest was God's ordained mediator. So what does it take to be holding the highest office? They're the qualities of few. That's what we see here in the Old Testament. We see that there are a few people, only a few, that were going to be allowed to be the high priest. But we see the qualifications of Christ. This is a New Testament. This is Hebrews being able to say, look at the qualifications of Jesus as the highest office. Look at him. Verse 5, in the same way, Christ did not take himself on the glory of becoming the high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Remember the two qualifications. One, that he would be called by God. or that, that, That's the Old Testament. Now Jesus, he would be called by God. Christ was divinely called as the high priest, just as Aaron had evidence of his calling. How? Well, demonstrated here, the author of the Hebrews here takes two different passages from Psalms and he quotes them there. You can see them, they have quotations around them. The first one is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, when it says, You are my son, today I have become your father. The reason that Aaron and his lineage would become priests is because they were in the line of Aaron. They were in the Levitical line to be priests. In this case... Those Old Testament, those Psalms, this, these passages in Psalms is talking about the coming Messiah, prophesying over the coming Messiah and specifically about the coming Messiah, that he would not be coming in the line of Aaron. He would be coming not because he was a son of Aaron, because he was the son of God. In the second passage, he says, you are a priest forever from Psalm 110 in the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is this guy? What is this name? We'll study a lot about Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to get there. We're going to spend some time there. So I just want to preview it for just a few seconds today. We'll spend some more time there a little bit. But the reason why he's spoken of is Psalm 110. He's prophesying there the coming Messiah. 
And the author of Psalms is using this to be able to talk about the coming Messiah and comparing him to Melchizedek because Melchizedek was more than the average run-of-the-mill priest. Back in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham meets Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, and he was a priest. So was Aaron or the line of Aaron ever a king? No, he wasn't. He was a priest. But if Jesus is born of both lines, he is a king and a priest. And he is not after the order of Aaron any longer. No, because he is a king and a priest. That's why I said he is after the order of Melchizedek. Because he is king and he is a priest. He's the king priest who has been called by God. That's why it's important. So the first was that he would be called by God. And the second, that he would identify with the people. <coughs> and in this passage... We see a reference here talking about a time period where Jesus in his life to demonstrate and to show us he was overcome with weakness. Hebrews here is showing us, the author of Hebrews is talking about a moment in history where Jesus crying aloud with tears and a desire that he would not want to endure. And if you know the Gospels well, you know that that is referencing the Garden of Gethsemane. When before having to face the cross, Jesus wept tears of blood for what he was going to have to endure. The book of Hebrews is saying to you and me at this moment, all the weight, all that accompanies sin, all the shame, all the guilt, all the despair, all the overwhelming force that sin really has of our own failures, it falls there on the soul of Jesus there in the garden. And he felt all of that weight he identified with your sin and with mine, and it begins to crush him. He would be called by God. He would be identified with the people. So what does it take to hold the highest office? We have the qualities of few. We have the qualifications of Christ. But then we have here the specific and perfect calling of Christ. Unique to anyone else. Verse 8. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be the high priest again in the order of Melchizedek. The work of Jesus, the perfect, it says, high priest, is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. His experience and what he went through, his suffering unto death, qualified Jesus as the Savior and as the Lord. It qualified him for this, the highest office. Eternal salvation is contrasted here with the temporary nature of the Old Testament sacrifices. What the high priest would do when he'd go in there, he would offer a sacrifice. But that sacrifice had a limit, a time limit. It was only good for so long. He would need to come in and offer another sacrifice again. And there was different timelines for different sacrifices. But this sacrifice, the comparison is eternity versus something that is temporal. All of time, continuing past the end of time versus a short period of time. 
God has designated Jesus, again, he says, as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, which places him in a category all alone, all by himself, above any of those Levitical priests. Jesus perfectly fulfills and exceeds the qualifications of the high priest. So when we look at the calling of Christ, I hope that you see here as we dig in here, we, we've, we've looked at this passage, we see that it exceeds, that this holding of the highest office is something that no human could ever do. No matter how hard you work at it, no matter how many New Year's resolutions you set. Any system of salvation by good works trashes Christ's death. It throws it out the window. Because if I just work harder, then I will be able to... No. Jesus had to die. The sacrifice had to be made. He is the only one who could sit in this spot. Why did he have to upper up offer up a loud crying? Why did the Garden of Gethsemane happen? Why do we see him at the cross with an unbearable amount of pain? Why did he have to suffer and die if we could just handle that, if we worked harder at it? Why would he go through all of that if all we had to do was live a good and moral life? Anything that adds our works to Christ's sacrifice as a necessary condition to salvation is an outright offensive to the atoning gift that he gave when he died there on the cross. So, if we're looking at the highest office, if we look at holding the highest office, where do we fit in? Where's our piece of this? And to bookend where we're going here, I, I say we have to hold fast or hold firmly to him. Go back to verse 14, if you will. Because this was the thesis. This is, how we, this is how we got here today. It says this. Therefore, since we have, in the present tense, we have the great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly, let us hold fast to this faith that we profess. Hold on to that. Why? Because it is the highest office. And he's the only one that can sit in that seat. Many of you have gone through a midlife crisis. Some of you are going through it right now. My father-in-law went through a midlife crisis, worked his way through it, and the thing that he, you know, so some people buy a sports car. Some people start dyeing their hair, you know, to get rid of the gray. Whatever it is, my father-in-law bought an Alaskan sled dog team. He found it in the paper and decided this is all I've ever dreamed of. I don't know if he saw Iron Will uh, when he was, I, I don't know. I, well, actually, I do know. That is what caused it. That's, so he bought a five-dog sled dog team, and we had it for two or three years, and I was in the military, and I'd come home and visit, and he'd have these dogs. And they were, they were not trained really at all. But they had to be worked out, and they had to be exercised. And, and it was kind of disappointing to him because he learned that huskies compared to labs or, or other animals that you would normally have in your house, they're really indifferent to humans altogether. You just feed me, I don't care. Other than that, I don't care if you exist. They'll lay, he would make all these shelters for them, and they would lay out in the blizzard in the snow anyway. They just didn't care. But I'm telling you what, the few times that I got to get behind a sled dog team, there was something amazing about that. 
Something about jumping onto the sledding, holding on for dear life, and they are just running. So one of the times that I got to come home, I had a friend of mine from the military, Lance Corporal Anderson. I forgot, uh, Chris Anderson, that's his first name. We never use first names. He was from Arizona. He had never seen snow at all. And for me to be able to bring him home and introduce him to my father-in-law, who had an Alaskan sled dog team in Buffalo, this was a big deal. This was a big deal. So my buddy's a little bit taller than me, six foot two or so, about 200 pounds. And my father-in-law told me, he said, listen, they're not trained that well, but we can send them down this row of trees and they do pretty well there and you just go, hold on and go for it. And so with sled dogs, what happens is as you roll over hills and different things like that, you're supposed to jump off and run with the dog so that they can go that much farther so they don't have to pull you over the top of the hill. And that's why you see people running behind the sled and then they jump on and the dogs can go that much farther, that much faster. That's why you run up the hills with them. And so that in itself is an exercise that you'll never experience any other way is to be rolling along at 20 miles an hour and try to jump and then immediately run at top speed. It's nearly impossible to do. You're asking to have a torn hamstring. But my buddy, he said, listen, they're not trained that well. You know, just, you know, if, if anything happens, if you fall, if so, just hold on, he said. And so we, there's this little anchor that you put down. So he pulls the anchor out of the snow, puts it in the sled. And he says, when you give them the call, they're ready to go. When you give them the call, jump on the sled and go. Mush is the call, of course. So he says, mush. And he goes to step on the rail and missed it. First step, never even got on the sled. And those dogs snatched him flat on his face, but he held on to that sled. <laughs> and at 200 pounds, those dogs dragged him nearly a mile. And when we finally caught up, and, he, and <laughs> he's from Arizona, when he, when he finally caught up, and he didn't know what to do now because all the dogs are all twisted in a knot, and he, he just, he doesn't know what to do. He had the biggest smile on his face in the whole world. You know, he's going to go home and tell all of his family and friends from Arizona, I just got dragged a mile by an Alaskan sled dog team through the snow, which you've never seen. I mean, his face was all cut up with twigs and stuff. I mean, he didn't care. He held on. Now this morning, as we look at this passage, he's telling us to hold on, to lock on, to hold on to the one who is in that highest office, to hold on to Christ. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And yet he brings us to him through some sufferings and through some hard times, through some bumps in the road. Don't you think my buddy probably went through a few bumps along the way? Hold on. John Piper says this. He says, no one has ever said that they learned their deepest lessons of life or that they had their sweetest encounters with God on the sunny days. People who go deep with God go there when the drought comes. Hold fast. Hold firmly on to Jesus. Are you in a drought this morning? Are there some bumps in the road that you're going through? Maybe it's this election. For some people, this is a very bad day, and that's not for me, but it's, it, can you hold on to Jesus? Can you hold on through this and not lose hope and not lose faith because you know that he is the one at the highest 
seat. He is the one in the highest office. Can you hold on? Maybe you have relationships this morning that are in shambles. A relationship with your spouse that is coming apart and it doesn't seem like there's any way that it could come back together. A relationship with a, a child who has gone away and, and you don't know if they're ever coming back. A relationship with a mother or a father that has been broken for decades. Hold on. Hold fast. Maybe you have a secret sin that you've been hiding. You've been looking around and assuming that as long as you keep leading that Bible study, as long as you keep attend, as long as you keep doing some of these things, maybe then it'll start to feel better. You've been holding on to something else. Religiosity is not what we're being taught to hold on to here. We're being taught to hold on to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Hold firmly. Hold on. One of the most common dreams that all of us have, apparently, is the dream, the fear of public speaking and you wake up in a sweat to realize, I was standing in front of 100 people, 200 people, and I don't have any clothes on. I got to go find some clothes to put on. That, that's, that's what you wake up in. Now, whatever the size of the crowd was for President Trump on Thursday, I don't know how large it was. But if he's going through that, if his nightmare the night before was, what if I'm standing in front of this crowd, I don't have any clothes on. Did he have that fear? I don't know. But why is that so intense? Why is that fear so real? Because it's a, the fear of being exposed for who you really are. The fear that you would be standing in front of everyone and they would all see what is going on. You understand that that is already happening? You understand that God, the maker of the universe, and his son Jesus, he sees through all of that facade that you put out there. And you're fooling your friends and you're fooling your family. And you're fooling the church, but you're exposed before him. And even still, he says, hold fast. I see you as you are. I see the filth. I see the mess of what you've become. And still, he says, he's got his arm reached out to you. He says, just hold fast. Hold on to me. Stop wasting your time anywhere else. And so as the band comes up this morning, we're going to sing a song. It's familiar to many of you. It's called Mighty to Save. Our God is mighty to save. He is our Savior. He is our victor. Will you hold fast to him. Why? Because all of the other things that you could be holding on to will fail you, will fade away. All of the other leaders that you could grab a hold of will fail you. They will fall away because they are unqualified to do that. They're unqualified to be the Savior. But Jesus, as Hebrews has demonstrated here so strongly and so powerfully, he is the high priest. He is the king. He is the one that you latch onto and say, Jesus, take me there because I have no other way. And if that's your heart, and that's my heart, 
it changes absolutely everything in how we look at the world. We are not afraid by who's in leadership. We are not afraid by how that relationship looks today because we know that Jesus is greater than that. Will you hold fast to your Savior, Jesus? Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that this author of Hebrews has just taken us through and built such a strong case for who you are versus anything else that we could chase. We love you and worship you and know that all the other things that we grab a hold of are fleeting away. We repent of that this morning. There are some this morning, Lord, who who feel exposed before you. Lord, I pray that they would reach out and grab a hold of that hand and hold firmly to you. You may be a person who would be accepting Christ here today for the first time, reaching out for his hand for the first time. I pray that you would have the guts to do that. You may be someone who knows Jesus and have walked with him for years. And yet as you stand exposed before him this morning, you realize that you've been grabbing and holding fast to a lot of other things, a lot of other promises, but not locking on to Jesus himself. I pray that your heart would be stirred as well. Lord, as we've dug into your word, as we read a couple weeks ago, Lord, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that it would pierce this morning. And in doing so, would draw us to grab a hold of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.